0: Before we get into Luke chapter 8, I wanted to introduce you by a video this morning to a young man seven years old named Josh Welch.: Suspended from school over breakfast, Josh Welch was eating a pop tart at school in Baltimore. A teacher saw the pastry and says she thought it looked like it was being shaped into a gun. The teacher also says she heard the boy say "bang, bang" while he was holding it. That was enough to get him suspended. Josh, though, says his teacher got it completely wrong. It was already a rectangle. I just kept on biting it and biting it, tore off the top of it, and it kind of looked like a gun, but it wasn't. Josh says he was trying to shape it into a mountain, but he didn't think he was doing a great job. The school sent out a letter late in the day to parents explaining to them what happened and why they think it was a threat. Seven-year-old goes to school, nibbling away on his Pop-Tart, decides to nibble it into the shape of a mountain, but ends up a little off, looks more like a gun, says bang, bang, and he's suspended. Now, I have not researched this fully, but to my understanding, Pop-Tarts cannot be turned into actual guns. And... I think it would take some sort of evil genius to form a breakfast pastry into something of a level of deadliness beyond its default level of deadliness, all right? (laughs) And Josh Welch does not look to me like an evil super genius, but he's a smart kid, He knows you can't make a Pop-Tart into a gun. Um, I'm with him on that. But behind the scenes of one of these crazy, over-the-top stories like we hear about is, we know what's going on, don't we? We're afraid. There is a culture of fear because of real horrific things that have happened, and with those fears, there is a desire to feel like we're in control, to do something that makes us feel safer, whether it works or not. This is an overreaction, is not going to help at all, but it is a desire to try to feel a little bit safer. Fear can be a good thing, right? I mean, it's it's built into us to keep us away from danger and dangerous situations. It's designed to protect us, but it can also end up being an overreaction and, and causing us to make some pretty irrational choices as well, Charles Darwin, you may have heard of this guy, Charles Darwin, wrote about evolution, um, also did some more writing, and a fascinating book he wrote called The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. He describes in great detail with photographs and, and drawings, describes the, the basic emotions that we have, one of them fear, um, here's his description of, or part of his description of fear. The heart beats wildly or may fail to act and faintness ensue. There's a death-like pallor. The breathing is labored. The wings of the nostrils are wildly dilated. There's a gasping and convulsive motion of the lips, a tremor on the hollow cheek, a gulping, a catching of the throat. The uncovered and protruding eyeballs are fixed on the object of terror, or they may roll restlessly from side to side. The pupils are said to be enormously dilated. All the muscles of the body may become rigid or may be thrown into convulsive movements. The hands are alternately clenched and opened, often with a twitching movement. The arms may be protruded as if to avert some dreadful danger or may be thrown wildly over the head. In other cases, there's a sudden and uncontrollable tendency to headlong flight. And so strong is this that the boldest soldiers may be seized with a sudden panic. What makes you afraid? What causes your heart rate to speed up or your body to tremor? In Luke chapter 8, we have a situation, a scene that looks like something out of a Hollywood film like The Exorcist. We have a shrieking, demon-possessed man who has superhuman strength who has escaped from his bonds of captivity. It is a scene that would cause anyone to shake in fear or to take off running. Anyone except Jesus. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in a cemetery outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. Then he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. The spirit had often taken control of the man. And when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke free and rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. This is a guy whose life has been hijacked by demonic forces. A legion, at least in Roman military terms, a legion was an army. An army of more or less 6,000 soldiers. So in Luke chapter 8, we find a man who is really, really scary. And Luke paints this picture for us, and he gives us plenty of details to, to be frightened by. Guy comes running at Jesus and the apostles, naked, filthy, shrieking, screaming, resident of the local cemetery, inhabited by thousands of demons, quite a picture. I was thinking this week as I'm reading this text, you know, Memorial Day is coming up and some of y'all will be headed out to a local cemetery with, with a bouquet of flowers To place on the tomb of that loved one who's gone on. And I, I just imagine this scene as I'm walking out through a normally peaceful graveyard. A guy like this comes running out of nowhere, shrieking and screaming, you're going to get back to the car as fast as you can. You're going to drop those flowers on any old person's grave there and you are going to take off. Well, this demoniac is not Hollywood fiction. He's real. He's quite literally a man possessed. And once we get past the shocking vision that Luke paints for us of this scene, we get a really good education on who our enemy is and on what our enemy wants to do to us. Now, if you aren't a believer, you may see the horrors of this world the terrible things that, that show up on Twitter, on the news, that haunt us on the internet. The horrible atrocities that are committed by one human against another. And you may think, boy, mental illness is running rampant around the world. Or you may have some other explanation for why these inexplicable evils happen. The Bible tells us there is an enemy at work who, since the Garden of Eden... Has been trying to destroy us. Satan is our enemy. He uses the forces under his control to attack God's most precious, beautiful creation, us. Now, in all the bizarre language and details that Luke gives us in Luke chapter 8, it is easy to miss a powerful little phrase in verse 27 where Luke tells us he was, quote, from the town. Luke is letting us know this fellow wasn't born and raised in a cemetery. This guy had a mom, he had a dad, he probably had grandparents, he had cousins, he had friends. He went to school, probably had a vocation, had colleagues of work. And we see none of that in the behavior of this man. It's hard to imagine this person in some sort of normal social setting, isn't it? And so we learn right off the bat, this is on your outline this morning, the first thing the enemy wants to do with us is to replace community with isolation. To replace community with isolation, to tear apart our relationships with each other. The demons have driven him from town. They've driven him from his family. They've driven him from his friends. We don't know when he has had just a regular conversation with another human being. Maybe it's been years since Jesus strikes up a conversation with this guy. But back in the beginning of all things in the book of Genesis, we have this image in the first chapters of Genesis of God creating the world. He's making stars, he's making ocean, he's making land, he's making the animals, God is creating. And after each stage of the creation process, God stops and says, that's good, that's some good work. The first time in the Bible that God says something isn't good is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. He says, it is not good for man to be what? alone. That's not good. And so he creates a relationship, an Eve for Adam. We were made to live in community. It's not good for us to live alone. God designed us this way. Not good to be disconnected, not good to be unattached to friends and family. Now remember this, Satan doesn't actually make anything. He is not a creator, right? But what he can do is take the things that God creates and ruin them. He can take the the good gifts of God that he makes for us. You name it. Food. Sex. Work. Leisure. Relationships. He takes the good gifts that God makes for us. And he distorts them. And he turns those good gifts into something that can be destructive and can be addictive to us. Community connectedness. God made this. God designed us for this. Our enemy is at work trying to destroy that. In Luke chapter eight, he's driven this man away from family, away from friends, away from community into a residence in the local cemetery. Now keep this in mind because He's always attacking our cohesion. He really is. Whether it's your church family or your biological family, he is attacking. Whether it's your team at work, in the office, he's attacking. Um, He's attacking the glue that holds friendships together. That's what he does. Now, community is a big deal here. We have ministries, we have programs, we have activities, and we can't force it into existence even through all of our planning and through all of our activity. What we can do at Preston Crest is we can create a greenhouse. We can create a place where there's an environment that cultivates and nurtures community, and that's what we do. And every once in a while, out of this environment, community happens. It happens at Corner Bakery, as guys get together to talk about life and pray together. It happened a week or two ago in West Texas, when a group of 30 of us, a lot of the singles, and our our disaster relief ministry were working together in that devastated community to bring Jesus there. Because it wasn't just ministry and serving West Texas, it was also doing it together as the body of Christ. It happens in over 40 small groups that meet around the Metroplex every week. And those of you who are involved in a small group, they meet virtually every night of the week. Those of you who are in a small group know what it's like to do life together, to do the highs and the lows with a group of people. It is a, is a powerful thing, a powerful part of our life together. And I'm not trying to do a commercial for our small groups or our ministries this morning. What I'm trying to say is whether it's a formal ministry, meet here at 8 a.m. and here's what we're going to do, or whether it's something that happens spontaneously in the kingdom of God. As we get together, we do life together. And we were designed to do life together. So, while while God wants to pull us into life-giving relationships, the enemy wants to pull those life-giving relationships apart. By the way, I don't think there's any place and this perhaps is another sermon. I don't think there's any relationship that he targets more than he targets the husband wife relationship. I think it absolutely delights the devil when he's able to put that relationship in jeopardy. The second thing he wants to do that we see in this story is that the enemy wants to replace health and growth with self-destruction. He wants to turn you on yourself. As Mark tells the story in Mark chapter 5, he says in verse 5, night and day, Among the tombs and in the hills, he, this man, would cry out and would cut himself with stones. Self-mutilation. All caused by the enemy. Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 8 that the enemy, Satan, is a thief. What is he stealing? What is he stealing? He's stealing life away from us. He's bringing death. He's bringing destruction into our world. God made you, God loves you, Satan hates you, and he is a liar, and he is trying to destroy you. But the truth is, God's love is stronger than anything Satan can throw at you, and you can trust that. That's why we celebrate communion every Sunday together. We're reminded that his love is boundless. He gave his only son for you. The story in Luke 8 reminds us that while your life may not look, hopefully doesn't look, as graphic as the demoniac's life in the cemetery. You and I still deal with an enemy who is hell-bent on destroying us. Now, before we get back to the text, let me just point something out as we read this story that's really kind of interesting. As we see all of these details that are worthy of a Hollywood motion picture, a terror film, we also see that one person is completely nonplussed, completely unfazed by the the scene that unfolds, and that is Jesus. He strikes up a conversation with the legion of demons. He actually grants a request that the demons have. So understand this as you come into the story and you, you think about this. Both Jesus and the demons understood who is who. They understood that Jesus has complete authority over the world of spirits, demons, and over everything else. So remember this. This is on your outline this morning. And this may be the one thing you need to carry out of here this morning. Remember this. Satan isn't afraid of you. But he's terrified of the one who lives in you. Satan is not afraid of you. But he is scared to death of the one who lives in you. Disciples of Christ walk in confidence, knowing that the one who lives in them conquered Satan and conquered death. So picking things up in verse 31, the demons kept begging Jesus. I love that image of the, ge- the demons begging Jesus. Don't send us into the bottomless pit. Verse 32, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby, and the demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs. So Jesus said, okay, he gave him permission. The demons came out of the man, entered into the pigs. The entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. History's first example of deviled ham. Now, That one's been in circulation a while. I imagine George Bailey probably used that at some point back in the early 70s. Verse 34. Well, okay. So they're pleading, please, please, please don't send us back to hell. Please don't send us back to the abyss. Jesus agrees. Jesus sends them into the pigs. Then they go charging off in the Sea of Galilee. One more illustration of what demonic forces want to do in terms of destroying those lives they meddle with. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man, they all knew this guy, they saw the man who'd been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane. (laughs) And they were all what? They were all afraid. Those who had seen what had happened told the others. How the demon possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away. And leave them alone for a great wave of fear had swept over them. Now that is a surprising twist on the story. You would think that in this setting, everyone is going to be afraid of the demon-possessed guy, but it turns out all of the townspeople are afraid of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus looked like a regular guy. I mean, despite how classical art portrays him with a halo on his head, The Bible tells us there was nothing about his physical appearance that was outstanding. Regular Galilean guy wearing a regular Galilean robe with a regular Galilean beard with a regular Galilean accent. But when he speaks to demons, they obey. And this scared those folks like crazy. They want Jesus to leave. They care more about their status quo, about their pocketbooks. I mean, this valuable herd of pigs has just committed suicide. They care more about that than they care about this local legend who's been living in the graveyard, scaring kids for years, and who is now perfectly well. They aren't happy about it. Now, we may see satan at work in the demon possessed man before the miracle but we see satan at work in the townspeople after the miracle he's disrupting jesus their status quo life in the decapolis the ten cities was going pretty well but jesus is disrupting things he's a change agent Please get out of town. Get out of our area. Verse 37, so Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him where? Home. Jesus sent him home saying, go back to your family. Tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all through town proclaiming the great things that Jesus had done for him. you see that? I mean, here Jesus has an opportunity to add another faithful, devoted disciple, maybe even another apostle. But Jesus sees the need of the hour. That is, this man needs to be reconnected to his family, to his friends, to his hometown. Go home. And while you're at it, Tell people what just happened. Tell people what the Lord has done for you. He brings the presence of God into the life of this tortured soul. The ex-demon-possessed man is now a friend of God, is now a man with a mission. He's found wholeness. Now, he's not a theologian. He's not a Bible scholar, but he is a witness of what God has done in his life. That is a message for us, friends, because you may not feel like you know the Bible frontwards and backwards. You may not feel like you've mastered all of Christian theology, but you have a story. You have your story. And that is a powerful tool to be used to spread the gospel of Christ. The quote from Luke is that Jesus tells the demon possessed man, tell them everything God has done for you. Now, most of the time, Jesus doesn't send us to the other side of the ocean. Jesus doesn't send us to Africa or to China or South America. Most of the time, Jesus tells you, go back home. Go to your streets, to your schools, to your barbershop, to your family, to your PTA. Tell them what I've done in your life. When we moved back from Brazil, one of the common questions I got asked was, okay, Gordon, so wow, what's it like? You've gone from being a missionary to being a preacher, right? And my answer was always the same. I'm still a missionary. I preached in Brazil too. I'm still a missionary and we have an amazing mission field right here, Dallas, Texas. And God has placed us and our circles of influence and our jobs and our friends and our network. He's placed us in this mission field. So praise God that we have missionaries in China and Greece and, and Russia and Scotland. Praise God for that. But you are a missionary here. All right? Be my witness. Jesus says, in your school, in your office complex, be my witness in your family. Tell those folks what I've done for you. Write this down on your outline this morning. Be ready to share with those who you come in contact with what the Lord is doing in your life. What the Lord is doing in your life. Disciples walk as witnesses, as missionaries, wherever they go. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to leave you with two questions, and these are Big questions, and these are questions I want you to honestly wrestle with today and and as this week unfolds. The first question is this. What are you afraid of? What are your fears? There's an old fable about a mouse and a magician. The mouse lives in constant fear of the cat. And so the magician says, look, I'm going to transform you, mouse, into a cat. The mouse becomes a cat, and the mouse becomes afraid of the dog. The magician turns that dog into a tiger. And that tiger becomes afraid of the hunter. And the magician finally turns him back into a mouse and says, look, it doesn't matter what I do for you. You still have the heart of a mouse. Hmm. You have the heart of a mouse. When you put on Christ, when you put on the lion of Judah, when you put on the son of God, he lives in you. Paul asks the Corinthian church a question in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, verse 5. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Don't you understand that? He asked them. So stop telling God about the things you're afraid of and start telling the things you're afraid of about God. (laughs) What is it that you're afraid of? And do you think that the risen Lord who lives in you is afraid of that? Finally, next question. I want you to remember how the townspeople reacted to Jesus. Think about this. Is there a part of your life where you're asking Jesus to stay away? Is there a relationship that's not God-honoring that you're asking Jesus to stay away from? Or a secret sin, or a compromising situation at work? Is there a place where you want the Lord to keep his distance? Ultimately, Jesus has to come in, and you have to submit to his lordship. Lordship is 100% or zero game here, okay? Either he's Lord or he's not. And if there's an area of your life where Jesus is not Lord in that area, and you know this is true in that area, you will not experience peace. You will not experience wholeness. So this morning, maybe you've locked Jesus out of a part of your life, out of a sphere, a realm of your life. And today you have an opportunity to repent. That's what people did when they encountered Jesus. They either sent him away or they encountered him. They repented and they found wholeness. Today you have an opportunity to repent and to let Jesus clear the demons out of that part of your life. Obedience and surrender, these are invitations by the Lord of lords to cast the darkness out of your life and to bring wholeness in. Maybe it's time for you to honor Jesus in your mission field. Maybe it's time for you to proclaim the great things he's done for you in your world. And if you call yourself a disciple, there's no maybe about it. That's the mission. That's what he's asking you to do. And it is time to accept his call and to live as a witness for him. Now, if you're afraid of that, because I know people are afraid of sharing what God has done in their life. They're anxious about it. There is a verse specifically for you. And apparently this is not a new fear because Paul wrote to Timothy about it. Now, we usually think of the first part of the passage. We don't think of the second part of the passage. The first part goes like this, 2 Timothy 1, 7 to 8, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, of love, of self-discipline. Why? Verse 8. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. That's why we have the spirit of the Lion of Judah. That's why we have a spirit of power and love and self-discipline so that we can share what he's done for us with those around us.